Good evening, and welcome, leeches and germs, to the Conspiraporn Podcast, brought to you by www.conspiraporn.com. My name is Mad, and I'll be your host today on this long-awaited part four in a four-part series dissecting the history of fear of the unknown and supernatural horror in fiction, literature, film, and beyond. If you're new to this show, in uh, part one and two, we delved into the long history of horror, dating from about 6,000 B.C. to 1900 A.D., And in part three, we covered horror from 1900 to 1970. And this, our final part in the series, we will tackle the illustrious history of horror and fiction from 1970 to the year 2021 and into the possible future of the genres of horror and sci-fi and what might lie in store as we continue forward into the 21st century. Uh, Now, when I first came up with the idea to cover this topic of supernatural horror, uh, which soon became multiple episodes, I'll admit I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I knew it would be a complicated topic with a lot of research and note-taking, in which I couldn't possibly hope to be a completist uh, with all the information and events which make up the genetics of horror and sci-fi history, Uh, but I had no idea uh, that it would become a roughly six-hour presentation, making up four separate episodes that needed to be broken up into different parts. Uh, But once I really started to dig in, I knew that the only way I could give this topic any justice was to at least try to present a complete picture, and I probably in all honesty, should have broken this series up into six parts uh, so people wouldn't feel they needed to listen to two-hour episodes, uh, but live and learn. And here we are moving forward to try and tackle the ever-perpetuating and accelerating genre of horror into the 1970s and 1980s and into the 21st century. Uh, Needless to say, if you haven't already and are interested in listening to this presentation in its full capacity, please go back and check out parts one, two, and three, in order to get a better uh, representation of the forward momentum of the genres of supernatural horror and sci-fi leading into the present day. And as stated, uh, there's simply too much to cover with all of this. I'm sure I left out a lot of details, and I'll leave out a lot more uh, for the sake of time. Uh, So if there's anything you think I missed, please feel free to hit me up and leave some comments or critiques on parts you think I should have included. Uh, You can leave me a message at conspiraporn.com or my email at mad. 247 at weirdness.com. That's M-A-D, the numbers 247 at weirdness.com. Or on Facebook or Instagram or uh, whatever other bullshit social media format we might be connected through uh, here in the endless sea of the interwebs. Uh, And I know a lot of people uh, usually do this uh, during the end of the bibliography or uh, research uh, resource list section. Uh, usually at the end of a broadcast or the end of books. Uh, But I wanted to take a moment to recommend several books and websites uh, that have been very inspirational and motivational in compiling the past three episodes, as well as episode four that we're discussing here today. And no order whatsoever. If you're interested in further exploring and researching these topics and all the topics of these uh, this four episode series, on the history of horror, please check out H.P. Lovecraft's Supernatural Horror in Literature, as well as Dance Macabre by Stephen King, uh, the Mammoth Book of Slasher Movies, as well as the Mammoth Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, the book Creature Features by John Stanley, the book Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix, the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zacree, as well as the website Tabula hyphen rasa.info that's t-a-b-u-l-a hyphen r-a-s-a dot info and uh, hundreds and hundreds of my favorite horror books comics movies films and uh, other 
uh, resource materials, which helped to inspire my decision to produce this four-part series. Likewise, check out the documentary series on the streaming channel Shudder, entitled In Search of Darkness, which is nothing but horror movies from the 1980s. I've definitely been watching a whole hell of a lot of horror documentaries on Shudder throughout the year. And allow me to say one more thing moving forward. In my mind, there is a difference between movies and film, especially as we're dealing with the 70s and 80s and 90s and the emergence of home video rental. Movies are movies and film is cinema. And that is not to say that cinema is only made for the big screen because quite the contrary, there have been a lot of film slash cinema uh, that was direct-to-video or direct-to-DVD or produced through a streaming channel such as Netflix. But to me, there is a difference between the intellectual and emotional experience of actual films and cinema as opposed to a mere movie. Movies are movies and film is film, in my mind, and often uh, the line can be blurry upon trying to differentiate the two. And I'll consider the same difference between uh, what we would consider a book and what we consider a novel and literature. It's low art versus high art. But in terms of this particular episode, uh, we're going to be dealing with so many movies and films. I'm not going to try to distinguish one from the other. I might mention a film uh, like Suspiria alongside a movie like I Spit on Your Grave. But I'm not uh, going to try to differentiate between the high art and the low art. Because everything I'll talk about today has pretty much established its own merits and fan base. And it's not my place to pass judgment on what is considered trash and what is considered treasure. And before we can truly move on into the 1970s, uh, there are a couple more things I didn't mention last episode uh, that need to be addressed. As 1962 brought forth one of my favorite films uh, that I forgot to mention, and that is the classic Carnival of Souls. While Carnival of Souls was largely dismissed and overlooked when it was first released, it uh, gradually developed a cult following since 1962, and it's now considered a low-budget classic. Uh, the film has also been uh, included in multiple lists by various media outlets as one of the greatest horror films ever made. In 2012, the Academy Film Archive restored Carnival of Souls, and the film has been named as a precursor to the works of various filmmakers, including David Lynch and George A. Romero. Uh, the film has a very Twilight Zone vibe, uh, with a great twist ending, and as stated, it's one of my favorite horror films of all time, uh, which I should have mentioned in the last episode, as it was an influential landmark on the route of horror cinema. And likewise, something else I simply can't leave out uh, that begins to take formation in the 1960s is the popular giallo, or yellow, style of Italian horror and suspense filmmaking, uh, which is popularly believed to have originated with the highly influential films of Mario Bava, who directed what's now regarded as the earliest of the Italian, Italian giallo films, uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much in 1963, and Blood and Black Lace from 1964. Bava also directed the successful Black Sunday from 1960, and would be a mainstay of Italian horror for decades to come. Likewise, uh, Mario Bava's 1971 film Bay of Blood is considered one of the earliest films of the emerging slasher genre and is noting, uh, noted as having influenced the creation of the Friday the 13th series, which would dominate the 1980s. Now, as stated, uh, the term giallo comes from yellow, uh, which derives from a series of crime mystery pulp novels entitled Il Giallo Mondadori, uh, published by Mondadori from 1929, and taking its name from the trademark yellow background of most of the book's covers. 
The series consisted uh, almost exclusively of Italian translation of mystery novels by British and American writers, and these included Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, Edgar Wallace, Ed McBain, Rex Stout, Edgar Allan Poe, and Raymond Chandler. Uh, so the entire genre of giallo films, which gained much notoriety in the 1970s, originates from the pulp novels and crime novels that were usually depicted with yellow covers and were Italian translations of pre previously published works. And of course, uh, there were many directors who would go on to shape the landscape of the giallo in the 70s and 80s, uh, but no one more so than Lucia Fulci and Dario Argento. Uh, Italian horror was huge in the 1970s and 80s, and pretty much on the same level as what the Hammer films had accomplished throughout the late 1950s and the 1960s. And the Giallo film brought a very unique flair of cinematography and colored visuals, as well as a very uh, visceral and psychological approach regarding acts of violence and sexuality. Uh, Giallo was a new form of cerebral and surreal dreamscape horror, uh, yet it was still based in bloody realism. And as stated, uh, Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento were not the only ones, uh, but they were the powerhouse names in this field and style of filmmaking. Argento uh, began work on his directorial debut, the giallo film The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, uh, from 1970, uh, which was a major hit in Italy. Argento continued to concentrate largely on the giallo genre, directing two more successful thrillers, The Cat O Nine Tales in 1971 and Four Flies on Grey Velvet in 1972. Uh, then in 1975, he directed Deep Red, which is frequently cited by many uh, critics as being the best giallo film ever made. Uh, and this is the film that made uh, Argento internationally known and inspired other directors to work in the genre, as it was uh, John Carpenter who frequently uh, referred uh, to the influence of Argento's early work, had on his hugely successful film Halloween from 1978. Argento's next film uh, was a supernatural horror classic, Suspiria, in 1977. And in 1978, Argento collaborated with George A. Romero on Dawn of the Dead, uh, earning a producer credit and also providing soundtrack work for the film. Argento oversaw the European release of the film, where it was entitled Zombie, Z-O-M-B-I, uh, which was much shorter <clears throat> and featured more of the score written and performed by the band Goblin. And I don't own a whole lot of records um, on vinyl, but the classic Goblin soundtrack to Dawn of the Dead is definitely one of my favorites and my personal collection. And an interesting bit of trivia is that it was in the 1975 film Deep Red in which Argento and the band Goblin paired for a long collaboration of film soundtracks. But this was only after Argento was uh, not able to secure the help of the band Pink Floyd. And that's right, in some bizarre alternate reality, Pink Floyd could have been the musical collaborator to Dario Argento and might have scored the soundtrack for Dawn of the Dead. Uh, but Pink Floyd aside, Goblin certainly added a lot to several Dario Argento films over the coming decades, and when I personally think of movie soundtracks, Goblin and Dawn of the Dead are one of the first ones uh, that always comes to mind. And not to leave out the works of Lucio Fulci, who is probably most noted as directing the classics Zombie 2 in 1979, City of the Living Dead in 1980, and the surreal and atmospheric The Beyond from 1980, and House by the Cemetery from 1981, and many more. Uh, so I couldn't properly move us in the 1970s without first mentioning my love of the film Carnival of Souls from 1962, as well as the birth of the so-called Italian giallo films, uh, which began in earnest with Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace from 1964. 
And these films are indeed a rabbit hole with dozens upon dozens of films to explore. And if you're interested in a crash course, I would again recommend the uh, streaming horror channel Shudder, as they have a very nice collection of these classic Italian films. And largely when considering the Giallo films, we're also reminded of the so-called grindhouse movies of the 1970s. And some would consider these foreign films to be sleazy Euro trash, catering to bloodthirsty perverts and sex-crazed psychopaths. Uh, but many of the movies I just mentioned in this segment and the directors uh, would go on into the 1970s um, would have some of the – these would be considered some of the best foreign films ever made. Um, they played a huge role in the emerging genres of the slasher movie and serial killer obsessions, uh, which have always been scandalous and shocking and capturing the headlines. Uh, but most notably and most recently in the timeline, we had the Manson family murders of 1969, uh, which closed out that decade of peace and love and flower power. And the LSD trip was going bad, and themes of insane knife or chainsaw-wielding maniacs was slowly coming to the forefront of horror cinema with a psychological angle that most popularly originated with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960. <clears throat> Though Psycho, while a masterfully crafted piece of cinema, is extremely tame by the standards of things uh, which were to come over the next few decades. The craze of the slasher movie was gearing up to hit full throttle throughout the later half of the 1970s and early 1980s with unbelievable box office success. And once again, I must state now that we are in the 1970s and the 80s and moving forward into the 21st century, there's an exponentially accelerated rate of horror movies and books, and there's no possible way in hell that I could mention everything. So instead, I'm going to focus on what I consider to be key elements in the evolution of horror, as well as just talking about some of my personal favorites. There are literally 10,000 books and movies to cover over the next 40 plus years of literature and cinema. So I'm going to attempt to talk about some of the most important and influential, as well as personal favorites, uh, while moving forward in a sequential order of year by year and decade by decade, uh, just as I've been doing for the first three episodes of this series. And let's not even get started on the element of horror in music, as it was in 1970 that the band Black Sabbath hits the scene, creating the genre of doom metal, which would eventually morph into both hair metal and death metal, and impacted the sound and imagery of bands and musicians for generations to come. And we're also not going to tackle the topic of doom metal and death metal, uh, and all the bands who have embraced elements of the dark and macabre over the past decades, but at least uh, had to make mention that 1970 kicked off with Black Sabbath's self-titled first album, uh, and perhaps the most memorable debut opening sequence and song to this day, which is ominous and creepy and unforgettable and just fucking kicks ass on so many levels. And the cover of Black Sabbath's debut album is The Lone Witch, inviting us in to listen. And 50 motherfucking years later, Ozzy is still putting out some rockin'-ass music as the self-proclaimed Prince of Darkness. But moving back to literature and cinema, 1970 brought us Night Gallery, hosted by Rod Serling, and we still had Dark Shadows on ABC, which ran from 1966 to 1971. And we still had Hammer, putting out Dracula movies with Christopher Lee, and there were still adaptations of tales by Edgar Allan Poe, and still movies like Bloodthirsty Butchers, which was a revamp of the old Penny Dreadful tale of Sweeney Todd, and we also begin to see adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft with film The Dunwich Horror in 1970. There were still the classic monsters and adaptations of stories which had been told uh, before time and time again at this point. Uh, but the movie-going audience was craving something new. And the times they were a-changing. Uh, 
coming towards the end of the brutality of the Vietnam War and the reality these soldiers were facing as they returned home to the United States and a decade which had seen uh, uh, several uh, public assassinations, uh, most notably with the killing of President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, reality was more troubling and concerning than a guy with fangs running around in a black cape and turning into a bat or somebody uh, turning into a werewolf during a full moon. The audience was craving something new, as were the creators who made these types of films. And with the slow advance of practical and special effects now in full color on the majority of movie screens and television sets, uh, the edge-of-your-seat shock value could be fully utilized, and the genre could be flipped upside down and backwards and turned inside out. Like I said, the trip was going bad, uh, which turned out to be good uh, for the horror movie genre. So in 1971, getting the whole down and dirty and gritty film experience off to a fine start was Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, based on Anthony Burgess's novel of 1962. Uh, with this alienating view of rape, ultraviolence, and Beethoven, it engendered a rather large amount of controversy, uh, but also carried its own message about the rights of the individual. It's not strictly a horror movie per se, uh, but its excess pushes it into the genre and would be influential on the decade of horror, in particular with the theme of rape in relation to being utilized as a controversial plot device, uh, which was sometimes used as a motive for the female protagonist to get their revenge, while other times just being used as a tool of excess and controversial and perverse male fantasies played out on the screen. And we would see the subplot of rape uh, come throughout the 1970s horror, perhaps uh, most notably with Last House on the Left, in 1972, uh, which we're about to talk about, and another rape-centric movie with I Spit on Your Grave from 1978. And the influence of Romero's cannibalistic zombies was still heavy in 1970, as we begin to see more bloodthirsty titles such as Blood Mania, Flesh Feast, I Drink Your Blood, I Eat Your Skin, Taste the Blood of Dracula, and The Wizard of Gore, while 1971 and 72 would bring us uh, such movies as Bay of Blood, Slaughter Hotel, and three on a meat hook. Uh, in 1972, would give us the classic backwoods hillbilly horrors of Deliverance, uh, with its unforgettable banjo. Da -da ding, 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 ding. Uh, that is forever cemented the idea in our psyches of the car breaking down in the middle of uh, nowhere and being attacked by a family of inbred and crazed maniacs who either want to kill us or eat us or rape us or perhaps all three in different orders, depending on how they feel that day. And I know Deliverance was about a canoe trip, uh, but the same idea applies with a broke-down car or being stranded somewhere where we don't belong. And on the subject, 1972 also brought us the controversial and game-changing slasher and serial killer film, The Last House on the Left, which I just mentioned, uh, which was the first in a long series of horror films from the brilliant and imaginative mind of writer and director Wes Craven. And something very interesting to note here is that The uh, Last House on the Left was itself inspired by a 13th century Swedish ballad, uh, which was then given a film version by the visionary filmmaker Ingmar Bergman with The Virgin Spring, for which he won an Academy Award in 1960. So a movie like Last House on the Left was actually influenced, uh, inspired by a 13th century Swedish ballad. And Last House on the Left, of course, was highly influential in bringing about the gr gritty and dirty kind of realism. Uh, to the horror film, and dealing with extreme and graphic scenes of murder, rape, and revenge. And with the Giallo and Grindhouse movies, uh, many people saw Last House on the Left as being sleaze cinema, and in very bad taste. Uh, but despite its dark and gritty nature, it still managed uh, box office sales of a little over $3 million, 
against its budget of $90,000. So it turned quite a decent little profit for a film of that kind at that time. Uh, but it also went to show that audience genu genuinely wanted to be afraid, or they wanted to conquer fear through cinema. And more and more brutal and shocking and inventive ways uh, were becoming necessary to draw in new and younger crowds. And needless to say, Last House on the Left remains disturbing to this day, as does to a lesser degree the 2009 remake, of which Wes Craven was also the producer of. Uh, Last House on the Left took new chances and pushed new boundaries, and would of course be the film that kicked off the long and illustrious career of Wes Craven, who we will definitely be mentioning throughout today's episode. And of course, there were a lot of other cool and now classic uh, horror films coming out of, uh, from 1970 to 1972, uh, such as Horror Express, starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. But by and large, the mood was shifting to more realistic and darker psychological terrain. Now in full color and going with a more low budget and grainy found footage style of production. <laughs> And Christopher Lee was all over the place, uh, as it was in 1973 that he would star in what some movie reviewers consider the Citizen Kane of horror films, and that is with the folk horror offering of The Wicker Man, which was based on the 1967 novel entitled Ritual by David Penner. Uh, the Wicker Man is considered one of the greatest British films of all time, and offers a bizarre glimpse into ideas of paganism, witchcraft, Satanism, human sacrifice, societal bonds, and religious belief systems and even ideas of the secret cult or insane and inbred family hiding in the backwoods and lost to time. The Wicker Man makes you think about a lot of different sociological constructs and the workings of society itself, not to mention its wonderfully directed cinematography. And not to say that The Wicker Man was about Satanism, because it's definitely not about Satanism, but the early 1970s also kicked off a boom of movies and books dealing with Satanism, hell, or demons, largely off the success of Rosemary's Baby, uh, both the film and book from 1968. At the same time that we uh, have a more psychological and human-based serial killer approach to horror, we also have an emerging psychological interpretation of Satanism, or witchcraft, or cult-like family bonds between covens, or customs, uh, that were hiding deep within society and waiting to be unleashed. Uh, this was most notably explored and remixed and reinvented uh, with the themes of the film Midsommar from 2019. And some people might consider this all to fall under a subgenre of folk horror or a neo-pagan thriller. And whatever the case, we definitely start to see more of a morality play emerging with horror. Uh, but there was nothing else in 1973 and pretty much nothing else for the rest of the 70s, nor has it ever been repeated or duplicated to this day, uh, than when the classic and phenomenal film The Exorcist was released on December 26, uh, 1973. And that's right. The Exorcist was released the day after Christmas. And when I say it was a phenomena, uh, that's no exaggeration. Theaters were sold out for weeks with lines of people waiting for blocks in order to get in and bear witness to this most shocking and disturbing masterpiece of all time. And of course, The Exorcist is a supernatural horror film uh, directed by William Friedkin and produced and written for the screen by William Peter Blatty. And it was based on Blatty's superb 1971 novel of the same name. And I'm not going to overly dwell on the plot or the impact The Exorcist had on cinema and moviegoers, as most people listening today are probably well aware of the film's influence on horror fiction and the blurring of horror fiction with nonfiction. Uh, but to put, to, this, to put the success of this film into some kind of perspective, the budget of The Exorcist was a substantial $12 million, uh, which was a lot of uh, money 
to make a horror movie in 1973. But when all was said and done, The Exorcist would go on to make almost $450 million in ticket sales, uh, which was just unheard of for a horror film at that time. About The Exorcist, uh, and The Exorcist would, would remain the top-grossing horror film of all time for over 40 years, until the release of Chapter 1 of Stephen King's It, which was released in 2017. And to say The Exorcist was a game-changer for horror and psychological suspense would be an understatement, and it remains to this day one of the most critically well-received uh, not only horror films, but films of all time. And chances are, when you ask somebody to name a horror movie, uh, The Exorcist will undoubtedly come up time and time again as either a favorite or at least one of the uh, most memorable and recognizable. And the film would go on to be nominated for and to win several Academy Awards and Golden Globes, giving it further acclaim and securing it as what uh, some would consider a masterpiece of filmmaking and the first horror movie to be recognized at the Oscars. And again, I'm not going to take too much time here talking about The Exorcist, um, the importance of The Exorcist, both the book and the film, and the impact it had on literature and cinema, because there are so many reasons that the film uh, had the huge success that it did. Uh, generally, generally, because it's just a very well-put-together film uh, with great acting, direction, cinematography. Uh, but The Exorcist is definitely a favorite of mine, and probably in my top two favorite horror films, tied only with Romero's Dawn of the Dead. The Exorcist was, was like lightning in a bottle in 1973, and continues to have cultural relevance and impact well into the 21st century. <clears throat> Likewise, William Friedkin uh, would one day go on to direct another favorite horror film of mine, and that is the largely unknown and underrated uh, film from 2016, uh, excuse me, 2006, uh, which is a mind-fucked entitled Bug. Uh, so I'd recommend the 2006 uh, William Friedkin film Bug if you haven't seen it. It's very underrated. And uh, take a brief moment here to consider just how much of an influence The Exorcist would have on the evolution of the horror genre of the next 50 years. And like several other films of the era, The Exorcist was claimed to be loosely based on a true story, um, which of course only heightened the spectacle and notoriety that the film garnered. And I want to say it again, as I have included uh, throughout the previous three parts of this podcast, that a certain public obsession with occultism and ultimately the characteristics of Satanism sprout up time and time and time again throughout the lineage of horror fiction, uh, going back to the medieval period and even before that. There's always been an underlining occult or otherwise supernatural element to so much horror fiction and folklore, uh, and this is perhaps uh, best epitomized in a film such as The Exorcist. Now, in the next year of our voyage, 1974 brought us a pair of films that would further go on to influence horror filmmaking over the coming decades, and the first was with the movie Black Christmas, which was largely ignored and called cheap and exploitative cinema in 1974, but several key factors would ultimately make this a horror classic, not the least of which it being uh, that it kind of set the standard for what would become a slasher necessity with the group of teenagers, uh, which are being stalked by a killer. So Black Christmas kind of introduced the horror trope of a group of teenagers who one by one would fall victim to the killer, as well as the idea of the final girl, uh, which has, of course, since become a mainstay in horror throughout the 1980s and beyond. And Black Christmas also used a first-person perspective through the eyes of the killer uh, throughout the movie, which hadn't really been done before and which would go on to be utilized in the classic films Halloween. And the idea uh, of the first-person perspective uh, through the eyes of a killer, as well as its holiday theme of Christmas, was a huge proponent for John Carpenter when he was developing the film Halloween in 1978. And Michael Myers, which is credited 
uh, with bringing about the era of the iconic slasher villain. Yet Halloween itself was inspired by Black Christmas from 1974, which was in turn inspired uh, by Psycho from 1960. And we'll, of course, talk about Halloween and John Carpenter a little bit later on in this podcast. And the other highlight of 1974, which was met with much opposition and cries for censorship, was the disturbing and unforgettable Texas Chainsaw Massacre from director Toby Hooper. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Psycho before it, uh, was said to be loosely based on the story of serial killer Ed Gein. And for its time, it was arguably the most gritty and brutal piece of horror cinema ever produced. And despite the public outcry from certain groups to ban the film, and a great deal of controversy, as well as behind-the-scenes drama over distribution rights, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a huge success, uh, making roughly $31 million against a tiny budget of only 84000 And it was in the success stories of films like Night of the Living Dead, or Last House on the Left, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which further inspired a new generation of filmmakers to try their hand at low-budget horror, uh, which had now proven itself big business at the box office and the drive-ins. And to reinforce the impact that Texas St. Jean Massacre had, uh, it spawned several sequels and prequels and reboots and remakes, uh, which are still being made into 2021. And Leatherface and the Sawyer family have undoubtedly become iconic and among the most recognizable of 21st century horror villains. Along with a film uh, like Deliverance, it kind of created a subgenre of the backwoods maniac. Another notable entry from 1974 was It's Alive, which was written, produced, and directed by Larry Cohen in what would be the first uh, real breakout film for him and help launch a long career, which would uh, bring forth other such works as Q, The Winged Serpent, The Stuff, and The Maniac Cop series, among uh, many other notable contributions to horror over the coming decades. An interesting note about It's Alive is that the film was scored by legendary composer Bernard Herrmann, who also wrote the musical themes and scores for a huge amount of films, uh, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, Vertigo, Psycho, Cape Fear, and the Twilight Zone theme song, as well as scoring several of the episodes of the Twilight Zone. Uh, He'd also go on to score Taxi Driver in 1976. And when I think of film scores and brilliant composers of film scores, Bernard Herrmann is always one of the first people that comes to mind. And for better or worse, 1974 also brought us the self-titled debut album from the band KISS, uh, which would blend elements of horror and rock and stage theatrics to dominate the realms of merchandising in a way only comparable to perhaps the Grateful Dead. And we'll talk more about horror and its relation to musicians and bands uh, as this episode progresses today. Uh, Though I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on horror and sci-fi and fantasy and music, as it would be a very long and complicated subject. But I hope to give a few appropriate shout-outs as today's episode progresses. But let's get back to the books. We can't neglect the horror literature coming from 1970 to 1974. The year 1971 brought us The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, as we've already mentioned, but it also brought us the classic Richard Matheson novel Hell House, uh, which we talked about last episode pretty extensively as being one of my top three favorite haunted house and ghost novels. And it was during this period in the early to mid-70s that we really started to see a lot of awesome book covers uh, that were churning out horror and weird science tales at an ever-increasing rate. 
and a book I'd highly recommend if you really want a deep dive into the history of horror uh, cover art from the 1970s and 80s is the 2017 book entitled Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix, uh, which I already mentioned at the top of today's episode. Uh, but it's got hundreds of entries and color illustrations from the 1970s and 80s paperback books and the history and evolution of themes within uh, the horror genre. So check out the book Paperbacks from Hell if you really want to explore this period of uh, horror cover artwork and major themes of the period. Likewise, in the early 70s, Marvel Comics in particular uh, was starting to put out a, a substantial run of horror comics and magazines, including The Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Frankenstein's Monster, Tales of the Zombie, The Living Mummy, and many others. By the mid-70s, we had seen a revival by both Marvel Comics as well as DC Comics uh, for several supernatural horror titles and anthology series, uh, such as uh, The House of Mystery, Chamber of Darkness, Chamber of Chills, Crypt of Shadows, Vault of Evil, Ghosts, and various other titles, all coming from Marvel and DC Comics. Uh, but independent publications were doing so as well, such as with magazines like Eerie and Creepy and Vampirella. Uh, so there was a lot of horror magazines and comic books to choose from in the early 70s. And supernatural characters, of horror-centric characters, uh, like Ghost Rider and Doctor Strange and Swamp Thing and Son of Satan and Phantom Stranger, the Spectre, and many others uh, were coming to the forefront of the comic book mainstream. At no other time since the 1950s with the EC Comics boom did we have such an exceptional time and golden age of supernatural horror comic books than in the 1970s, uh, coming primarily from Marvel and DC, but also independent publishers as well. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, monsters and mutants, or whatever frequency you identify with, <clears throat> I've kind of been dreading the next part of our program because it seems a rather all-consuming topic. Uh, that we could vote, devote hours and hours to. But that is with, and deep breaths here, uh, but here we go, it's with the publication of the book Carrie and the breakthrough of Stephen King onto the horror scene in 1974. And now that we're on the subject of Stephen King, I honestly don't know how to proceed with this podcast uh, because Stephen King has kind of dominated the past 50 years of horror, hasn't he? I don't, I don't say that negatively. Uh, because Stephen King is undoubtedly one of my favorite authors and undoubtedly one of the most prolific writers of the 20th and 21st century. Uh, I distinctly remember in fourth and fifth grade at recess, I was sitting under a tree uh, during recess, reading Misery and Pet Cemetery for days and weeks at a time. And the very first movies I remember watching on Betamax, no less, at about five years old is Cujo and Creepshow. So needless to say, I was probably a weird little kid. I've since gone on to read almost every Stephen King book. Several of them I've read more than once. And the same can be said of the films and TV adaptations. I mean, uh, honestly, what the fuck can I say about Stephen King that hasn't already been said before? How can I add anything substantial to the topic surrounding the influence that he's had on horror and sci-fi and fantasy uh, as a genre? And let's not even get started on the great works of his son, Joe Hill, or the rest of the King family. I guess all I can say is that if you're a true Stephen King fan and constant reader, and even if you're not a big uh, fan of King's illustrious body of work and adaptations, there's no deny uh, denying or doubting the impact uh, that uh, Stephen King has had and the influence he's had on horror literature, films, television over the past 50 years. It'd be an easy argument to make that there probably has been no other author with the readership or media influence in particular of Stephen King, not only in the 20th and 21st centuries, but perhaps ever in human history. 
uh, besides, of course, religious texts such as the Bible or Bhagavad Gita, or perhaps, of course, uh, works of Shakespeare. Uh, I believe Shakespeare has uh, sold much more than Stephen King, but he also had uh, several hundred years head start. And that's for better or for worse, uh, because Stephen King has had his fair share of subpar books and bad TV and movie adaptations. I guess what I want to say is that if you're a true King fan, and as I have, have read the majority of his books, some of them multiple times, and have seen most of the movies and TV adaptations, then you'll have your own personal uh, Stephen King story uh, for how you were drawn down the rabbit hole and what kept you reading for decades at a time. I think it really comes down to is that eight times out of ten, Stephen King just writes a really damn good story. And a lot of it which transcends the horror genre. And he usually tells a very interesting tale. And lords, yes! Does he write a lot of them? M-O-O-N, that's about 62 books. Including seven under the pen name of Richard Bachman. And five non-fiction books. King has also written a massive 200 short stories. Most of them which have been compiled in various book collections and countless anthologies over the years. Dozens and dozens of television and film adaptations. An insanely prolific career, which has now spanned nearly 50 years, but it all kicked off in 1974, with the success of Carrie, followed, of course, by the film adaptation from director Brian De Palma in 1976. And when all is said and done, King is estimated to have written around 80 books, and has been featured in hundreds of different book and magazine anthologies, and I can barely... Uh, even guess at how many television and film adaptations have followed, uh, but dozens and dozens is a safe estimation. Some of them have been pretty lackluster, to be fair, uh, but many of them are now considered some of the greatest pieces of cinema of all time. Among those would be Kubrick's The Shining from 1980 and Stand By Me from 1986, Misery from 1990, The Shawshank Redemption from 94, The Green Mile from 99, or uh, even films such as The Mist, from 2007 and directed by Frank Darabont, and most recently the 2017 remake of It, with Chapter 1 and 2, which It, Chapter 1 and 2 combined made over a billion dollars at the box office. And while I love so many Stephen King books, and it's hard to pick favorites, uh, some of my favorite uh, books from Stephen King have actually been written in the past 10 years or so, uh, including Dr. Sleep, which was also an awesome film adaptation uh, recently, and 112263, as well as the book Revival from 2014, which is among the weirdest and creepiest and most troubling works King has ever written. And uh, we mentioned the Richard Bachman pen name that King wrote under for several years, which produced two more of my favorite King books with The Long Walk and Road Work. And in some cases, I actually enjoy the Richard Bachman books more than many of the King books. Uh, so needless to say, the impact of Stephen King, uh, not only on horror, but American literature, can't be denied or ignored. And his influence on the late 20th century and early 21st century writers and filmmakers. And let's not even get started on the monumental and epic Dark Tower series, uh, or the interconnected Kingverse of related characters and overlapping themes and mythological undercurrents. And we could talk for hours and hours and hours about Stephen King, and perhaps one day we will. But this is not that day. Close the thing, I'm going to... I think it's going to take another hundred years uh, to really understand the ramifications King has had on literature and film. And all of us listening today, and Stephen King himself, won't be around to decipher that puzzle. But millions upon millions upon millions of people have read a Stephen King book or have seen a King movie or an adaptation. And Mr. King's net worth is $500 million. So, quite obviously, his imaginative contributions upon several genres of fiction and many different mediums has been haunting our minds and our wallets 
for the past 50 years. In close, as an author of epic horror and supernatural literature, Stephen King is pretty much the fucking man and unparalleled in his inventiveness and productivity. The man can make a haunted toaster seem interesting and creepy. And on the subject of the history of supernatural horror, as mentioned earlier in this broadcast, I also very highly recommend King's 1981 book, Dance Macabre, uh, which was his ideas on horror literature and cinema of the early 20th century. Uh, this is a great nonfiction resource and ties into many of the themes of the past four episodes of the Conspiraporn podcast. And moving forward, Stephen King wasn't the only author finding success writing horror novels in the 1970s, and as stated, it was in the 70s and 80s that the paperback horror book really hit the market in a big way, uh, with all variety of amazing and memorable artwork on the covers, in many cases of which was even better than the books themselves. And in the 70s and 80s, the collected horror anthology also really starts to hit the scene in a big way, collecting authors both old and new alike, and helping new talent find an audience. The 1970s brought us the highly successful Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, both the book and the movie, uh, which is still influential. It's had many sequels and reboots over the decades. Uh, we also get some great books such as The Stepford Wives from Ira, Ira Levin, uh, who was hot off the success of Rosemary's Baby. And we also have the publication of The Omen by David Seltzer in 1976, uh, which of course was hugely successful and influential and further pushed the occult element of horror and the Antichrist theme, uh, which really took precedence not only in horror literature of the 1970s, uh, but also of a lot of uh, New Age and uh, neo-religious uh, belief systems of the 70s and 80s um, in books that were published around that time. The decade also brought us The Doll Who Ate His Mother by Ramsey Campbell, whose career really launched in the 1970s with several works. And we also had Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice. Uh, which kicked off a long series of successful books in the Vampire Chronicles uh, series, which ultimately led to uh, the hugely popular film adaptation of Interview of the Vampire in 1994. I think it would be safe to say that probably no one more so than Anne Rice has had such an influence on the vampire subgenre of horror in the late uh, 20th century and early 21st century. The 1970s also gave us authors such as Dean Kuntz, whose 1970 books, uh, 1975 book Night Chills is one of my absolute favorite by him. And of course, Kuntz would go on to be a best-selling author throughout the 80s, 90s, and into the 21st century uh, with popular books like The Watchers, Twilight Eyes, Darkness, and his Frankenstein series, as well as the Odd Thomas uh, books. And while Dean Kuntz has uh, been kind of hit or miss for me, uh, when he is good, he's really good, and he's a modern master. Another author who really broke out into the mainstream during the 1970s was Peter Straub, with his excellent books Julia in 1975 and Ghost Story in 1979, as well as Shadowland from 1980. And Straub has since uh, cemented himself as one of the preeminent supernatural horror authors of the past 50 years. And of course, he went on to team up with Stephen King on the Talisman series of books, of which fans are still eagerly waiting for the third part in the Jack Sawyer trilogy, uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to read that sometime soon. Uh, we're also getting a Talisman Netflix series soon, uh, as the rumor would have it, so, so perhaps that will coincide with the release of part three in that book series. And I stated several times last episode that the classic ghost story from 1979 is in my top three novels about hauntings. And of course, uh, there was also the 1981 movie adaptation of Ghost Story. And strangely, there's only been uh, so far only two movie adaptations of Straub's work. 
And that comes with Ghost Story and the Haunting of Julia from 1977. Uh, we also had The Howling by Gary Bradner in 1977 and dozens of other notable novels to come out in this decade. Uh, but when we're talking about real powerhouses such as The Exorcist or The Amityville Horror uh, in terms of book sales, uh, it was in 1974 that we get the novel Jaws, uh, which was immediately followed by the movie adaptation in 1975 and directed by Steven Spielberg. Now, Jaws is another one of those things I don't really have to talk too much about, because everybody fucking knows what Jaws is. Uh, but to understand it in financial terms, Jaws was produced on a budget of $9 million and went on to make nearly $500 million at the box office, not to mention phenomenal book sales. Uh, so it goes without saying there was Jaws fever in 1975. And it's kind of interesting to consider that with The Exorcist and Jaws, uh, we had two horror films which were in the top 10 money-making films of the 1970s, pulling almost a billion dollars in ticket sales between them. And of course, uh, Spielberg also gave us the uh, sci-fi classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, uh, which made another $300 million at the box office and is also in the top 10 most successful films of the 1970s. Uh, so Steven Spielberg definitely dominated the box office in the 70s and 80s. Moving forward, 1974 brought us the Mel Brooks classic Young Frankenstein, uh, well, 1975 brought us the now cult classic Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, so it's nice to see there was still room for humor and camp and to have a little fun with the classic horror characters of previous generations. 1975 uh, brought us the bizarre experimental body horror film Eraserhead uh, by David Lynch, uh, which, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, really solidified its cult following through a very long series of midnight film showings and theaters. And I really miss uh, the midnight theater showings. It used to do with films like Pink Floyd's The Wall or the classic 1980 uh, movie uh, Heavy Metal and films like uh, Racerhead and many others that truly found their audience of freaks and weirdos during these special midnight screenings. And of course, uh, movies like Rocky Horror Picture Show are still playing with special screenings all across the globe. And if you've never been to a special viewing and performance of Rocky Horror, I suggest you go at least once in your life as it's an entertaining adventure, uh, even if you're not really a fan of the film. Uh, I know a guy who's been like 40 times over the past 40 years, and that seems like a bit much to me, but to each their own, and everyone should attend at least one of these Rocky Horror events, uh, because they can be a lot of fun and a unique experience, if nothing else. In 1978, we had another game changer in the horror film genre with the release of John Carpenter's Halloween. And while Halloween was influenced uh, by the Italian Giallo movies, as well as the movie Black Christmas from 1974... It is Halloween which is popularly heralded with ushering in the emerging theme of the slasher movie, with dozens upon dozens of uh, films that would inundate the marketplace throughout the 80s and 90s, uh, largely based off the success of Halloween by John Carpenter. And I'm sorry to once again uh, use box office terminology to express the impact or popularity of a certain film, because I know that uh, box office revenue doesn't necessarily indicate that something was a good movie. There's a whole lot of things that are popular today that are actually kind of shit. But the film Halloween was made on a budget of about $300,000 and ended up making nearly $70 million at the box office and continues to have sequels and reboots over 40 years later as Halloween Kills is set to be released uh, this October 2021. Uh, so needless to say, while John Carpenter already had a couple movies under his belt by the time he directed Halloween in 1978, uh, this was obviously the film that launched his career. And we can be thankful for that, 
uh, because Carpenter's put out some awesome and classic films over the decades, including The Thing remake, uh, Escape from New York, They Live, and In the Mouth of Madness, just to name a few. And once again, as with Psycho and several others, Carpenter understood the importance of the film score in relation to the action that's taking place on the screen. And he has composed uh, some amazing film scores for some great movies over the years. And we'll surely uh, touch upon uh, more uh, about the film scores and the films of John Carpenter and his influence later on in today's episode, particularly when we get into the 1980s. Uh, and along with Michael Myers in the Halloween franchise in 1979, uh, we also uh, get another iconic horror character in The Tall Man from Phantasm, uh, p- portrayed by the late Angus Scrim. And for me, I think at a very young age, uh, while I'd seen other horror movies, it was Phantasm, uh, which was really the first one that really hit me as not only a creepy and lingering nightmare, but also as a representation of horror as a kind of art form. Uh, Phantasm is and has always been kind of a beast unto itself. And Phantasm is another one of those movies that had a budget of under uh, half a million dollars and went on to do over 20 million at the box office and continued to be uh, be very successful and do big numbers once VHS rental really took off in the early 1980s, uh, which just goes to show uh, the popularity of horror movies at the cinema and the drive-ins across the country, especially in the 70s and 80s. Anyway, Phantasm is one of those movies that holds a special place in my heart and memory. It never gets old watching, and is always a surreal classic to bring out during the month of October. And last but not least, as we close out the 1970s, we have another highly successful inclusion into the horror and sci-fi genre with the movie Alien in 1979, directed by Ridley Scott. And of course, Alien has had a, a variety of sequels over the years, as well as several movies co-starring The Predator, uh, several different series of really cool comic books, most notably from Dark Horse uh, Comics, and of which Marvel Comics, uh, now owned by Disney, is ironically doing a new Alien comic book series. Yes, Disney now owns the Alien franchise. Most notably, we had the uh, cool prequel film Prometheus from 2012 and Alien Covenant from 2017. And of course, a good deal of success of the Alien franchise can be attributed to the beautifully macabre and surreal character and set designs of Swiss artist H.R. Geiger, uh, which catapulted to a certain mainstream recognition with the film Alien and its subsequent sequels. And H.R. Geiger uh, definitely belongs in the same breath with such masters as the artist Francis Bacon or Hieronymus Botch uh, when we consider macabre, uh, surreal, and dark art. But before we can truly close the book of the 1970s, and I apologize in advance if uh, the next segment of this broadcast is a little disturbing for some listeners, but we're all adults here. And keeping in line with the sub-theme of every episode of this four-part series on the history of horror, uh, we have to address the boom of serial killers and media fascination with serial killers in the 1970s. And I don't wish to dwell on the topic of the serial killer, but like war and plague and holocaust and inquisition... I can't help but see the emerging media circus surrounding serial killers, uh, perhaps in no other decade like the 1970s, as having a clear impact on the genre of horror. And hot off the Manson family murders that sent a shockwave through Hollywood, another killer was terrorizing the San Francisco Bay Area. The Zodiac Killer 
ushered in a new era of serial killer, uh, one who was smart enough to get away with murder, but at the same time wanted the publicity. The Zodiac Killer became famous for his series of cryptograms and coded letters uh, that he sent to the press. In the letters, the killer admitted to murders, threatened more killings, and was believed to have given hints at his true identity. Zodiac was believed to have killed at least five people during the late 60s, uh, but could be responsible for more since he was never captured. Police looked into several possible suspects, but no one has ever been identified as the Zodiac Killer or charged in the killings linked to them. And in this regard, uh, the Zodiac Killer is uh, the most mysterious serial, serial killer since Jack the Ripper from 1888, who was also never identified or captured. And this idea of the killer taunting the police and FBI and purposefully leaving clues has become deeply ingrained in thrillers and horror, particularly when dealing with a serial killer horror villain. And while California grappled with its cults and unsolved mysteries, a serial killer with an eye for young men plagued Chicago. John Wayne Gacy, also known as the Killer Clown, would go down as one of the most notorious serial killers in history. In 1978, Gacy confessed to murdering 33 teenage boys and young men, uh, but he could have been responsible for even more. Many of his murders took place in his own home, where he would sexually assault and strangle the young men to death. Almost all of his victims were buried in the crawl space beneath his house. And of course, the horror trope of the killer clown arguably originated with John Wayne Gacy in 1978. While Gacy targeted young men, other serial killers went after young women in the 70s. Uh, the man uh, who should have been indicted uh, the most fear uh, may have may who have may incited the most fear uh, may seem the least suspicious of them all, and that was with Ted Bundy, as Time wrote in the case of the Chi, Chi Omega killer on July 16, 1979. Bundy did not conform to the six typical psychopath stereotypes. Uh, quote: The defendant is. Unlikely-looking murder suspect. He is handsome, articulate, and composed. A former law student who, in his blue suit, is almost indistinguishable from the defense lawyers clustered around him. Nonetheless, Bundy is suspected by police of being one of the worst mass murderers in U.S. history, responsible for a trail of up to 36 young women victims spanning four years and four states. Uh, Bundy was convicted of killing two women in the Chai Omega sorority in Tallahassee, Florida, and was sentenced to death. Before his execution in 1989, Bundy confessed to killing 36 women, but many believe he was responsible for the deaths of a hundred or more. The killing spree of David Berkowitz, the son of Sam in New York, was publicized around the world. Beginning in the summer of 1976, uh, six people were killed and seven others wounded by a 44 caliber gun. The murder weapon was the main link police had for the crimes until April 1977, when Berkowitz left his first letter near the scene of the crime. The letter is the first time Berkowitz uses the name Son of Sam. Berkowitz wrote many letters as Son of Sam, taunting police and future murders that followed uh, that summer. His victims were usually young, young women uh, with long, dark hair, uh, reports of which caused many New Yorkers to panic. According to the Time article, Son of Sam is not sleeping. Terrified parents in the area, uh, quote, terrified parents in the area are now insisting that their daughters wear their long hair up, bleach it, or have their dates at home. Some girls have decided not to date until the killer is caught. And others are adopting unusual evening wear, uh, loose sweaters and large caps to distinguish themselves as males. I'm scared, said one Queen's girl. I used to kiss my boyfriend in front of the house. Now I run in. Uh, Berkowitz was thankfully arrested on August 10th, 1977 and was sen sentenced to six life sentences. Uh, the Hillside Strangler. 
Uh, not long after the capture of the Son of Sam, fear began to spread on the other side of the country in Los Angeles. From October 77 to February 78, the bodies of 10 women were found in a hilly area above the city. With no leads, the media began attributing the victims to the hillside strangler. It was only after Kenneth Bianchi uh, was arrested in the killings of two women in Washington uh, that he confessed to be the hillside strangler murderer and implicated his cousin Angelo Buono as his partner in crime. Bianchi and Biono were both sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jim Jones was the founder of the People's Temple Religious Movement and ringleader of the biggest mass murder-suicide in history. On November 18, 1978, Jones led more than 900 people to their deaths as they drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid in Guyana. As time noted in The Lore of Doomsday, uh, the event would uh, become a dark bookmark for the decade. Uh, the Jonestown story, like some Joseph Conrad drama of fanaticism and moral emptiness, has gone directly into popular myth. It will be remembered as emblematic identifying moment for the decade, a demented American psychopomp in a tropical cult house uh, doling out cyanide with Kool-Aid. Jonestown is the ultimate of the 70s cult movement. Uh, just as Altamont began the, destructive, uh, the destruction of the sweet, uh, vacish uh, aspirations of Woodstock, Jonestown has decisively contaminated the various vagabond zealotries that we have grown with, nourished, and sometimes have turned sinister. And seeing as how I talked more about serial killers than I intended to in today's episode, it still seemed necessary. And taken uh, in conjunction with the last three episodes of the podcast and building upon the evolution of the idea of horror in the mass human psyche. And with that being said, uh, that's the last I'm going to focus on any real life serial killers or mass murderers or death cults. Uh, but we unfortunately, of course, know uh, that we could talk uh, about another 20 serial killers and mass killings over the 1980s and 90s and the, into the 21st century. And what has undoubtedly become a serial killer and true crime obsessed subgenre. And what that says about the mass pop culture psyche of modern culture. Now, dear friends and listeners, we are now in the 1980s. And you know what that means? Yes, that's right. It's time to crack open a beer and celebrate because we are almost, I say almost, at the halfway point of today's episode and finishing out this four, four-part series. And we're going to continue the year-by-year rundown as we finish out today's episode, but for the sake of brevity and to make sure this episode doesn't run three freaking hours, I'm just going to try and run through what we would consider true game changers in the genres of horror, literature, and cinema, as well as my personal favorites. Uh, there was no other decade for horror uh, than the 1980s, and with the advent of Betamax and VHS players slowly becoming more and more available to the wider public, horror movies could be made on much smaller budgets and bypass the movie theaters and drive-ins and said coming right into your home with the gradual boom of video rental stores. And the 80s were the largest proponent of evolution in terms of not only horror, uh, but every other uh, form of visual media, uh, by and large due to the emerging market uh, for VHS players, video stores, video rental, and hundreds of movies uh, that might never have been given uh, the chance uh, on a big screen, at least not in any widespread capacity. And, of course, we had uh, video discs and laser discs and other forms in the 1980s, just as vinyl records went from 8-track cassettes and then much more compact cassette tapes. Uh, but it was with the VHS market in particular uh, that the technology hit widespread success and more easily manufactured and affordable methods of mass production. Uh, so, folks, 
I'm going to try to uh, not to overly focus on uh, any one element of the 1980s or cover the 5,000 uh, horror movies and books. Uh, but if you're interested in a lighthearted and well-crafted deep dive into the history of 80s horror cinema, I highly recommend, again, the two-part documentary uh, In Search of Darkness uh, that was made recently. It's about six hours of nothing but horror movies from the 1980s. Uh, on today's episode... Uh, on today's episode of Conspiracy Porn, I'm not going to talk for 10 minutes about how a movie like Chopping Mall or Motel Hell influenced the horror genre, uh, but I want to try to do some justice to the 1980s, because like many of you uh, who might be listening across time or space, uh, the 80s was my decade. I was born in 1979 and got to experience the onslaught of so much technology and groundbreaking films and novels and music firsthand. Uh, so, okay, here we go. The 1980s. Oh, fuck. Where do I begin? I guess the best thing to do uh, would be to make this simple and easy and start with two things uh, that are rather obvious. Uh, the early part of the 1980s saw the boom of video stores and rental as more and more people were able to afford VHS and Laserdisc players. And with this came a censorship campaign originating in Britain against what the film committee deemed to be video nasties, uh, which basically uh, were movies that had been given a triple X rating. And were deemed unfit for public consumption. And then when they weren't outright banned, uh, the films were allowed to be released. They were so edited down uh, to be much more PC approved uh, with uh, mild levels of gore and violence and blood and no gratuitous sexual situations. Uh, so we can't really start the dialogue about the 1980s with at least mentioning the British film campaign against the so-called video nasties and the effects this had on horror films for better and worse uh, throughout the decade. In some cases, the censorship of the video nasties made certain movies impossible to find and are now virtually lost, while in many other cases, the censorship campaign only backfired and gained more attention and notoriety for bringing more attention and publicity uh, to the movies than they uh, would have normally gotten on their own. And there's something about the forbidden element and the label of quote-unquote dangerous content that isn't suitable for viewing that piqued the interest of a public who now had access to home entertainment and Betamax, VHS, and Laserdisc players. Fans were able to become collectors and bootleggers uh, of their favorite movies and TV shows. And that had a massively huge impact not only on the horror genre, uh, but on mass media in general and how films were made. And the same can be said about technology for transferring and recording music in the 1980s. So in 1980 begins the Video Nasty campaign in Britain, and corresponding with that, in the United States in 1980, we had the first installment of the Friday the 13th franchise. And when most people think of 80s horror icons, undoubtedly Jason Voorhees is the one that, that probably first comes to mind. And uh, ultimately, highly influenced by Halloween, the Friday the 13th franchise became a more low-budget yet high-octane version of Michael Myers. Friday the 13th was produced for half a million dollars and made $60 million at the box office and, of course, it spawned 12 sequels, or reboots, as well as comic books, toys, video games, and much more. And once again, speaking of the impact of VHS players and video rental, I'm sure the uh, Friday the 13th series uh, did gangbusters with rentals in the 1980s. And I would have to say that while characters like Norman Bates and Michael Myers definitely moved uh, the idea of the sympathetic horror villain icon further, and pushed forward upon the foundations of uh, characters like Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. It was Jason Voorhees who really pumped a new kind of adrenaline and vitality into the veins of horror cinema. 
and the emergence of VHS rentals greatly helped with making Jason Voorhees arguably the first truly modern pop culture horror icon. And of course, this wouldn't really happen until Jason uh, gets his hockey mask in Part 3, which came out in 1983 and in 3D. Uh, but the fact that uh, they were basically putting out one of these movies every year for a good chunk of the 80s uh, just goes to show you uh, the popularity and durability of this character as the first really modern pulp culture horror icon. And again, we already had Norman Bates and Leatherface and Michael Myers, uh, but I would totally credit Jason Voorhees as the first quote-unquote modern horror icon. The 80s started something new with the emergence of mass-marketed video stores and rental, uh, which was become a huge source of not only storytelling, but of revenue. And for the record, my uh, personal favorite inclusion in the Friday the 13th franchise uh, is The New Blood from 1988. I'm sure most uh, fans of uh, the Friday the 13th series would laugh at me if I told them that The New Blood was my favorite in the, in the series, but it is, and... Uh, you know, eat me. Okay. Also, uh, hot off the success of Halloween, uh, actress Jamie Lee Curtis was the it girl of the year and would go on to star in three more horror classics all released in 1980 uh, with The Fog, Prom Night, and Terror Train. Uh, 1980 also brought us the classic haunted house movie The Changeling starring George C. Scott and a creepy uh, but very silly little movie called The Children. And The Children is one of those uh, uh, crazy movies that I saw on TV as a little kid sometime during the 80s. And while I've never watched it again, uh, it stuck with me for years and years until I actually had to Google the movie a couple of years ago just to find out what the fuck it was that I had watched on that strange uh, Saturday in my uh, pre-teen years. But anyway, The Children isn't a well-made or successful movie, uh, but it was one of those that stuck with me throughout my life. Uh, so I actually had to try to find out again uh, what, what it was that I had watched on that strange day back in the 1980s. And an absolute favorite of mine is Altered States from 1980, directed by Ken Russell and starring the on-screen debut of actor William Hurt, as well as the first appearance of a young Drew Barrymore. And though it isn't specifically a horror movie, uh, it's definitely a psychological suspense and terror. And it has some rather groundbreaking special effects for the time, as well as some of the most beautifully surreal and bizarre segments of cinematography ever put onto film. Uh, the soundtrack is also amazing, as well as the acting and the plot. Altered States is also credited as being the first film to utilize the practical bladder effects, uh, which would play prominently throughout the 80s, particularly when dealing with werewolf transformation scenes. And Altered States didn't get much love in 1980. Uh, it made little impact at the box office, but it went on to become a cult classic. And like I said, it has some of the most jarring and haunting scenes ever put on film. Altered States is one of those movies I wish I could get a limited IMAX release uh, because that would be pretty badass to watch on a big screen. And closing out 1980, last but not least, of course, we have to mention The Shining. Uh, the Shining didn't really do all that great at the box office either, uh, but it's still considered a masterpiece of cinema from the visionary director Stanley Kubrick. And even though Stephen King famously hated the film for decades, it seems he finally uh, came to terms with Kubrick's version of of the, the Shining uh, with the release of the excellent film Dr. Sleep from 2019, uh, which serves as a spiritual successor, uh, blending both King's and Kubrick's versions of the original Shining. And the big-budget spectacular Ready Player One from 2018 also plays a great homage to Kubrick's The Shining. <clears throat> so while The Shining wasn't necessarily considered a huge box office success, uh, it undoubtedly has still become pretty much the epitome of what the average person thinks about <clears throat> when they think about a horror movie. And this was Jack Nicholson amped up to 11. 
along with some of the most haunting scenes ever produced. So uh, we definitely couldn't leave The Shining from 1980, and we'll see this is yet another in a very, very long string of Stephen King adaptations that dominated the 80s and the 90s. Then in 1981, as we mentioned the film Altered States, introducing bladder effects, uh, 1981 gives us a duo of awesome werewolf movies uh, that gave audiences some spectacular werewolf transformation scenes, uh, which set the bar for special effects to come, and that is with the classic American werewolf in London and The Howling. And uh, never before had we seen with such visceral detail what it was like to transform into a werewolf uh, long before the advent of CGI. And the werewolf transformation scenes of both of these films still hold up 40 years later. Like I said, while they were both good movies on their own merit, the special effects in these films would influence horror cinema forever. And we can say that another movie from 1981 that uh, highly influenced uh, special effects uh, would be the film Scanners and the famous exploding head scene. More and more attention to detail was coming into the spotlight and practical effects and special effects and more realism. Uh, was becoming an integral part of the horror genre. Uh, so all I can say is that American Werewolf in London, The Howling, and Scanners from 1981 uh, all heavily influenced the future of special effects in horror movies, and we can arguably say that Altered States from 1980 really kicked open the door. And 1981 uh, also gives us movies like My Bloody Valentine and the quirky The Monster Club, starring Vincent Price, in which we are presented with one of my favorite movie monsters, uh, largely unknown to most audiences. And that comes with the character of the Shadmok, who is the genetic offspring of a vampire, a werewolf, and a ghoul, and can kill people with its deadly whistle. If I were to write a horror book uh, which utilized a classic monster, I'd definitely go with the unknown and underrated character of a Shadmok. I've actually had about 25 pages of a book I've written, and uh, starring a Shadmok, that I'd like to finish one day, but who knows if it'll ever actually see the light of day. And it was 1981, uh, when a true legend was born in Ash Williams, from the first Evil Dead film, of course directed by Sam Raimi. And what the fuck can really be said about Evil Dead that hasn't been said before? Evil Dead uh, spawned two sequels, starring Bruce Campbell, Saving the World, a pretty cool reboot movie, a television series which ran for three seasons, and a long line of cool comic books which have carried on the legacy. And when I say Evil Dead and Ash Williams, I think we really are talking about a legacy. Evil Dead is a very effective little low-budget horror movie, and Evil Dead 2 and all the rest represent some groundbreaking horror-slash-comedy with a very heavy dose of H.P. Lovecraft thrown in the mix. Now I can say uh, any fan of uh, horror in the 1980s, particularly if you were a little kid, and a fan of horror in the 1980s, Ash was one of your heroes. And the entire franchise, spanning 40 years now, has always had a very special place with its fandom, especially the ones who actually grew up uh, with these movies and patiently waited for decades for the latest chapter in the saga. And I want to say to those that were disappointed that the Ash vs. the Evil Dead only lasted for three seasons, I would highly recommend the hundreds of comic books out there, including the epic Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash uh, series of comic books, which are hard to find and expensive, but well worth reading if you get the opportunity. <coughs> Excuse me. Along with Ash Williams, another hero horror of mine in 1981 came with the character of Jack Death from the movie Trancer, starring Tim Thomerson. Trancer is also known in some markets as Future Cop, is a cult classic, and Full Moon Entertainment, headed by Charles Band, would go on to dominate the video stores in the 1990s. 
But in my mind, it was the movie Trancers uh, from 1981 that went on to have four sequels in the franchise, and that really got Charles Band's foot in the door for what would inevitably become Full Moon Entertainment, as well as Band having the distribution rights through his Empire Pictures to such popular 80s. 80s horror movies such as Reanimator, From Beyond, Dolls, Terror Vision, Ghoulies, and Troll. And we'll definitely be talking a little bit more about Charles Band and Full Moon Entertainment when we get into the 1990s. And to round it all out, 1981 also gave us the unforgettable badass anti-hero of Snake Plissken and John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So 1981 was the year of the emerging anti-hero in horror fiction. 1981 also brought forth one of my absolute favorite films and soundtracks of all time, and that is with the animated film Heavy Metal, uh, based upon the magazine of the same name, which is still running along in 2021. And in my opinion, while Heavy Metal is a fantasy and sci-fi movie, it also definitely has elements of a horror movie, as the tale of the wicked Lochnar, which narrates the anthology, and the segment entitled B-17 should definitely be considered horror. And Heavy Metal is one of those movies where I'm sure I've seen it and listened to the soundtrack well over a hundred times in my life, and it just never gets old. A classic midnight movie, if ever there was one. Then, 1982 gave us the bizarre and unforgettable movie Basket Case, as well as flicks like Slumber Party Massacre, and the often derided but now cult classic Halloween 3. Moviegoers were also treated uh, to John Carpenter's remake of The Thing, uh, which has some of the greatest practical effects and body horror to ever hit the screen. And even though The Thing wasn't that successful at the time, as it was up against the family-friendly E.T., which came out the same year, and is considered one of the most successful films of all time, taking in nearly a billion dollars at the box office and made back almost ten times its production budget, uh, not even including all the marketing gimmicks that surrounded E.T., including toys and games and clothes and collectibles and comics and cards and lunchboxes, and on and on. E.T. was a money-making juggernaut, and perhaps if a film like The Thing had come out uh, the previous year and hadn't been competing with E.T., it would have made more waves at the box office, but regardless, the thing is an excellent example of practical effects, Cold War isolation, paranoia, great acting, and memorable characters and situations. Uh, up next, in terms of horror movies, even though it was PG-13 and family-friendly, Poltergeist was the highest-grossing supernatural horror movie in 1982. It was written and produced by Steven Spielberg and directed by none other than Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. And a fan favorite, and one of the first I ever remember watching as a little kid, comes with the release of Creep Show, uh, which of course was a collaboration between Stephen King and George Romero, and it bid homage to EC horror comics of the 1950s. Creep Show 1 and 2 are all-time classics, but with some great special effects by the maestro Tom Savini, and there's currently a pretty damn cool Creep Show revival series that's well worth checking out on the streaming channel Shudder. So Creep Show is definitely a torchbearer to the great EC horror comics uh, titles of the 1950s and is still carrying on the tradition into the 21st century. 1982 also gave us the release of the first album from horror punk band The Misfits, entitled Walk Among Us, uh, that went a long way in what ultimately became a merger of punk and horror sensibilities and aesthetics uh, throughout the 1980s. Uh, there had been a certain horror element within previous bands and glam elements such as legendary artists like David Bowie and, of course, Kiss, uh, but the Misfits were the first to really merge the elements of horror and punk rock music uh, to popularize a new subgenre, not only of music, uh, but also of horror literature as the term splatterpunk originated in the mid-80s. And the merger of punk and horror was definitely influential throughout the 80s and the 90s and beyond. <clears throat> and 1983 then took us back 
to the 1960s with the film's Psycho 2, and starring Anthony Perkins once again as Norman Bates some 23 years after the original film, as well as Twilight Zone the movie, and what would ultimately become the early 80s revival of the Twilight Zone magazine and television series, uh, which was pretty popular throughout the 80s. And of course, adaptations from Stephen King were still going strong, uh, with John Carpenter's take on Christine, as well as Cujo, which terrified audiences in the early 80s. 1983 also gave us such gems as Sleepaway Camp, along with the provocative and trippy cult classic Videodrome, written and directed by David Cronenberg. And then 1984 uh, was then a very busy, busy year for horror. And please allow me to relay my distinct memories of 1984. Uh, I was five years old. First off, I distinctly remember the uproar and protests as parents and religious groups uh, rallied against the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night. And along with the serial killer Santa Claus, I'll always remember being scared shitless uh, by the previews for the first Nightmare on Elm Street film. And of course, Freddy would go on to be a hugely popular pop culture phenomenon in the 80s, particularly when he started cracking jokes and one-liners. Uh, but to a five-year-old in 1984, the previews of Nightmare on Elm Street were pretty damn scary. And making Santa Claus a mass murderer gave plenty of kids nightmares as well. And in re at retrospect, uh, the uproar of fundamentalist Christians and parents against Silent Night, Deadly Night was probably about the greatest promotion the movie could have ever received because a lot of people might not even have heard of it unless it had the uh, censorship campaign against it, which rallied up all this free publicity and promotion. <clears throat> and back to Freddy Krueger, who was undoubtedly an iconic horror character and part of the new breed uh, that hit the scene in the 1980s. I'm especially fond of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, uh, The Dream Warriors, which is when the series not only found its stride, but also its peak, uh, but really fucked up to think that Freddy Krueger, a child murderer and hinted at pedophile, would go on to star in six films, two reboots, and a team-up movie in Freddy vs. Jason, as well as a television series, endless toys and collectibles, and become a beloved horror villain. Uh, it would have been surprising in the 80s if Freddy would have gotten a Saturday morning cartoon and his own brand of cereal. And when you watch those movies, Freddy really was pretty pervy. Uh, which is only all the more horrifying considering he was a child killer. But you can't help but to love him, or at least love to hate him. And moving on, my third biggest memory from 1984 uh, was probably seeing Gremlins in theaters, which for being family-friendly still kind of had a dark side. Gremlins was directed by Joe Dante, and it was a massive success in 84 and 85, making hundreds of millions at the box office, and another hundred million off of toys and product endorsements. And this was the perfect storm. Uh, for cute and cuddly toys marketed to preteens, as uh, we had a huge wave of E.T. merchandise, and then Gizmo and Gremlins toys, and the fuzzy Ewoks from Star Wars invading toy shelves everywhere. And that's not even getting into the insane Cabbage Patch Kid craze uh, that was still going on at this time as well, which g would give rise eventually to the immensely popular Garbage Pail Kids card series uh, that was collected by pretty much every kid in America in the mid to late 1980s. 1984 also brought us the cult classic Dennis Quaid film Dreamscape, uh, which was a very cool concept with some notable actors and performances. And of course, the unforgettable apocalypse world of the president's nightmares, as well as the reptilian snake man that appears throughout the film and terrified kids everywhere. And the snake man also inspired a rather disturbing anti-drug PSA ad from 1986 that always creeped me the fuck out when I was a kid and would come on late at night. Uh, this year also gave us the Lloyd Kaufman trauma classic The Toxic Avenger, and of course, Stephen King would continuously uh, be being adapted with productions of Children of the Corn and Firestarter in 84 and Cat's Eye and Silver Bullet in 85. 
And we also get what is arguably the first real horror retrospective documentary with Terror in the Isles, uh, which was basically a look back at the history of the horror movie up to that point and was hosted by the great Donald Pleasance and actress Nancy Allen. Moving into 1985, it was a great year for zombies. Uh, This was the year we got both Day of the Dead from George Romero as well as Return of the Living Dead, which freaked everybody out with its opening credits uh, that was all based on a true story. And I'm one of the older generation who grew up in the 80s and 90s loving zombies. Uh, They were my favorite monster, honestly. Uh, But we only had like five or ten movies to choose from at the time. And I always wanted there to be more zombie movies and books. But unfortunately, here we are in the year 2021, and now I'm all zombied out. I mean, I'll never get sick of watching the classics. Uh, There's been some great zombie fiction in the past couple of decades. But to me, it feels like about seven years ago, uh, the zombie genre just kind of jumped the shark and got way too oversaturated and user-friendly and a parody of a parody of a parody. Uh, but I'll always have fond memories of the times as a young horror fan. Uh, all I had was the original Romero trilogy, a couple Fulci movies, and the three Return to the Living Dead films. Uh, for as popular as zombies are today in the 21st century, there were several decades when all fans had, aside from some comic books and books, were about five or ten zombie movies to choose from. And today we've probably got hundreds. And at this point, that's not necessarily a good thing, in my opinion. But for better or worse, zombies have been unleashed and are a huge part in the undercurrent of the mass human psyche. Now, we also got a different kind of zombie this year, with the movie Herbert West Reanimator, based on an H.P. Lovecraft tale and directed by Stuart Gordon, and starring the ever-likable Jeffrey Combs. And along with Reanimator, which was distributed by Charles Band's Empire Pictures, another hit of the year coming from Empire Pictures was Ghoulies, with the unforgettable promo image of a ghoulie jumping out of the toilet to get you in the end. As ridiculous and as humorous as that image is, it was pretty damn effective of an ad campaign to think that a ghoulie uh, might jump out of the toilet and eat your ass. And of course, ghoulies uh, were a kind of generic B-movie spoof on the popular gremlins, uh, gremlins from the year before. And another quirky and memorable movie from this year came with The Stuff, written and directed by Larry Cohen and starring B-horror mainstain and all-around great actor Mr. Michael Moriarty. And last but not least, I, I say it a lot, Uh, I say that a lot, last but not least, because, I don't know, Uh, sometimes things are last, but of course they're not least, and it can just keep happening. So, last but not least, 1985 also gave us the cult classic Fright Night, uh, which I'm pretty sure I've watched more than any other vampire movie in my life. Fright Night holds up very well today, and was an awesome homage and throwback to the classic vampire films and television horror hosts of the 50s and 60s. And it includes some wonderful performances, uh, not the least of which was by the legendary actor Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, Vampire Killer. And another classic vampire movie of 85 uh, would come with the Japanese anime Vampire Hunter D, uh, which is noted as one of the first anime films to really get the attention of the U.S. market. And of course, once Akira came out in 1988, the floodgates of Japanese anime were opened. Uh, but it was with movies like Vampire Hunter D and Golga 13, uh, that series, as well as others, that helped pave the way for Japanese animation and storytelling, uh, making it in- into the U.S. and beginning to influence pop culture. And as far as Akira uh, from 1988 goes, it's definitely another of my favorite films. It's a beautiful masterpiece of sci-fi, psychological horror, splatterpunk, futuristic apocalyptic dystopia, paranoid conspiracy totalitarianism, and a teenage coming-of-age story, all wrapped up into one. Akira is a masterfully crafted piece of Japanese anime. And it's a little sad to me that so many kids today are so wrapped up in Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Dragon Ball Z and the like, 
but they've never watched Akira. And holy hell, we're now halfway through the decade, as in 1986, audiences were given a wide variety of choices, with movies like April Fool's Day and Critters and House, as well as a pair of remakes with Little Shop of Horrors, uh, directed by Frank Oz, and The Fly, directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, we also got a really foobar sequel with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, starring Dennis Hopper and Caroline Williams. And we got a film that would leave a bloody mark on serial killer culture with the disturbing Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, with a phenomenal performance by actor Michael Rooker. Uh, two of my favorites from 1986 include Wes Craven's film Deadly Friend, starring the young and beautiful Christy Swanson, uh, Swanson who was later going to become Buffy in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. And another favorite from 1986 is Night of the Creeps, directed by Fred Decker, starring Tom Adkins with a humorous and kick-ass performance. 1986 also gives us Troll from Charles Band, and I have to admit, as a little kid in the early 80s uh, visiting the video store, I think it was the promotional poster for Troll uh, that freaked me out the most. And with the success of Troll, it would further establish Charles Band and what would ultimately become Full Moon Entertainment. And of course, John Carpenter was still cranking out classes uh, with movies like Big Trouble in Little China, uh, followed by The Prince of Darkness in 1987, uh, which to me had one of the most unsettling and creepy endings of any horror film ever made. And we can't forget Maximum Overdrive, uh, <laughs> written and directed by Stephen King, and starring the Green Goblin's face as a killer rampaging semi-truck. Yes, Stephen King was coked out of his mind by this point in his career, and if you've never watched it before, I uh, recommend checking out the original uh, Stephen King uh, teaser trailer for Maximum Overdrive, where he stares maniacally and points into the camera with the promised slogan of, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Needless to say, it did not scare the hell out of many people. But as campy and silly as it was, uh, Maximum Overdrive is still a pretty cool little 80s movie. And then we hit a landmark year in 1987, as audiences are treated to uh, such must-see classic as, classics as The Lost Boys, The Gate, and The Monster Squad, and the arrival of one of the most noted and recognized horror villains of all time with Pinhead, otherwise known as the Hell Priest uh, from Clive Barker's visionary Hellraiser series. And what can be said about Clive Barker that hasn't already been said? His beautiful and macabre and masterfully crafted storytelling graced the landscape of the 1980s uh, with such classics as the six-volume Books of Blood series, The Hellbound Heart, uh, Weave World, as well as Cabal, uh, which would become the film Nightbreed, and that supposedly uh, currently has a television series in development. Uh, Clive Barker, who is also a prolific fantasy artist, could easily be mentioned as fitting right in with the themes and sensibilities of H.R. Geiger and writer and director Tim Burton, or Francis Bacon, or Hieronymus Botch. Unfortunately, the Hellraiser film series, as well as the long-awaited book sequel entitled The Scarlet Gospels, uh, has been a bit of a letdown to fans in recent years. Uh, but the impact and legacy that Clive Barker has left on horror and fantasy is second to none. And I'd like to mention here, too, that uh, there have been a whole lot of really cool Hellraiser comic books uh, series over the years, uh, past several decades as well, that are worth checking out if you're a fan. And Pinhead kind of felt like a capstone villain that was at the top of the food chain, so to speak. And actor Doug Bradley was born to play the part. It's uh, really fucking hard to recast Robert England as Freddy or Doug Bradley as Pinhead and not piss a lot of people off. And I imagine it's going to be about the same thing trying to replace Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in the Marvel movies, uh, if you want to put something in comparison. 
Speaking of Freddy, uh, 1987 brought my personal favorite from the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and that was with the Dream Warriors. Uh, Freddy would go on to several more sequels and reboots over the years, uh, but my opinion it was part three that really set the standard and rules for how it should be done. And not to be left out in terms of sequels, but both Creepshow 2 and Evil Dead 2 were released this year. And it was really with Evil Dead 2 that the franchise uh, was really solidified. And then followed by Army of Darkness five years later in 1992. And folks, it took a long time. And it was a tall hill to climb, brothers and sisters. But after a 20-year-long wait, fans were finally given more from Ash Williams uh, with the Evil Dead reboot in 2013 and the Ash vs. the Evil Dead TV series, which ran for three seasons on the Stars Channel and started in 2015. And there were a whole lot of great comic books along the way, which continued the adventures of Ash Williams and his battle against the Deadites and the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, including 12 comics where he faced off against Freddy, Jason, uh, Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, which I already mentioned in uh, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. But the damn kids today just won't realize that fans had to wait 20 years for Evil Dead to come back to movie screens and for the return of Ash Williams. Why, back in my day, we walked uphill both ways and only had 10 zombie movies and three Evil Dead films to choose from, and we liked it. Then, moving on to 1988, horror fans got two new icons with Chucky from the long-running Child's Play franchise, as well as the super-awesome Stan Winston character design from Pumpkinhead. And I have to say that visually, Pumpkinhead is probably my favorite horror monster, at least visually, aesthetically. Uh, Stan Winston kind of adapted an H.R. Geiger meets H.P. Lovecraft approach to this creature design, and in my opinion, it really paid off. And the sequels continued as well with the unforgettably disturbing and stylistically macabre Hellraiser 2, and my favorite of the uh, Friday the 13th franchise with Part 7, The New Blood. Uh, yes, that's right. Friday the 13th, which had its debut in 1980, already had seven movies in the series by 1988. And Part 7 is my personal favorite. And if you want a full behind-the-scenes scoop on the making of every movie, all 12 of them, in the uh, Friday the 13th uh, series, I highly recommend the seven-hour documentary entitled Crystal Lake Memories. This was a year that also brought us Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow, and I'll never forget uh, being in fourth grade and turning some heads when I wore my Serpent and the Rainbow t-shirt to school with the tagline of, Don't bury me, I'm not dead. I was a weird kid. I look back, and I was kind of strange. And we still had an appreciated level of camp and humor, as the hostess with the mostess, Elvira, portrayed by Cassandra Peterson, uh, was featured in her own movie this year and became a sensation. And as we spoke in some detail about the birth of the horror host in the last episode of this podcast, Elvira included, uh, so I hope you'll check out our last episode if you want a little bit more background into the emergence of the television horror host of the 1950s and 60s. And to close out the decade, Wes Craven was at it again with the movie Shocker. And Stephen King ended the 80s strong with an adaptation of his book Pet Cemetery. And I know I've mentioned over and over again today's episode the impact of writer, producer, director Charles Band in Full Moon Entertainment. Uh, but it was in 1989 that the first installment in the Puppet Master series kicked off, uh, providing an array of memorable anti-heroes with Blade and Jester and Leech Woman and all the rest. And it was Puppet Master uh, that eventually launched Full Moon Entertainment. And for me as a kid in the 80s and a teenager in the 90s, uh, Full Moon Entertainment was pretty fucking awesome. Their cover art was among some of the best on the video shelves, and many years before DVDs hit the market, 
It was Full Moon Entertainment who was offering special video zone, uh, behind-the-scenes interviews and previews of their films and bonus features at the end of the cassette tape. And remember uh, that when you get to the end, be kind and please rewind. Otherwise, you'll be charged a buck or two and maybe put on the FBI's most wanted list. (coughs) Excuse me. And with its comic book style and ever-expanding and shared universe of characters, Full Moon Entertainment was a video force to be reckoned with in the 1990s, uh, which brought fans several more installments in the Puppet Master franchise, the Subspecies series of movies, several sequels in the uh, Trancers series, and some really great entries with Castle Freak and an adaptation of Poe's Pit and the Pendulum, uh, both directed by Stuart Gordon, as well as Meridian, and a dozen other movies with solid practical effects and inventive plot lines and decent production values, uh, even if still considered a straight-to-video B-movie. In the 1990s, Full Moon was at the top of the B-movie video rental game, but unfortunately, and for reasons I don't fully understand, uh, Full Moon just started putting out some terrible entries, starting about in the year 2000. Even though I'm sure their most popular entry of the past 20 years, uh, Evil Bong, is considered a cult classic by some. But again, for a moment in the 80s and 90s, uh, Full Moon Entertainment was poised to become another Hammer Studios. Uh, even if none of Full Moon's films got much, or if any, uh, release in theaters. So in close on this, and... Uh, of the 1980s, uh, Full Moon Entertainment was a big factor in horror and sci-fi and fantasy in the decade to come uh, in the straight-to-video market. <coughs> Excuse me. I must make uh, one last mention on the 1980s. And the decade also closed off the bizarre and surreal and disturbing Japanese cyberpunk body horror film Tetsuo the Iron Man. And Tetsuo the Iron Man is a weird and inventive film, uh, which I can't help but think played a large part and the coming industrial and techno music motifs of the 1990s. And again, incorporating punk rock sensibilities tied with uh, Gonzo-style filmmaking. It was dark and gritty, and it was disturbing, and it helped to bring more experimental Japanese horror cinema to American audiences, which really started to take hold in the early 2000s. And my fiends, that brings us into the 1990s. And for the sake of brevity, if brevity is even possible with a four-part podcast that runs almost six damn hours, I'm going to try to speed through the 90s and 2000s and only hit upon the most key and notable elements of horror over the past 30 years. And it might seem a little comical and strange for me to kick off 1990 with this factoid, uh, but it was the first year that The Undertaker made his appearance in the WWF. And The Undertaker, Mark Calloway, uh, who finally retired this year, Definitely went on to provide a legendary horror character and anti-hero, and is considered one of the greatest professional wrestlers and most memorable gimmicks of all time. In terms of film, 1990 brought audiences such horror entries as the surreal supernatural thrillers Flatliners and Jacob's Ladder. Uh, We got some notable sequels with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, the highly underrated Exorcist 3, uh, we also got some pretty cool reboots, uh, one with Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead uh, remake. Uh, this is also the year that gave us Troll 2, which is considered by many to be the best worst movie ever made. Uh, of course, the ever-present Stephen King really hit his stride in terms of adaptations in 1990, as this was the year of the critically acclaimed film Misery, as well as the year we got Tim Curry's portrayal of Pennywise the Clown in the first TV adaptation of It, uh, the Tales from the Dark Side movie also hit screens based on the modestly popular TV series. And as a kid, Tales from the Dark Side had one of the most haunting intros and theme songs ever, 
uh, when it came on at midnight and you were home alone at 10, uh, 10 years old. And before we can move further in the 90s, it must be mentioned that a wide array of popular horror authors uh, started hitting the scenes, including a couple of my favorites in Robert R. McCammon and Bentley Little. The highly underrated Robert R. McCammon has written such acclaimed classics as Boy's Life and Swan Song, uh, the later of which is every bit as good and epic as Stephen King's The Stand. And McCammon uh, has also put uh, such fantastic horror fiction, uh, also written such books as Stinger, Mine, The Wolf's Hour, and its sequel, Hunter from the Woods, uh, The Five, and Blue World, which is a short story collection, and he's written so many more great books. And while McCammon really started to hit his stride in the mid-80s while working on the Twilight Zone TV and magazine revival, it was in the 90s that I really discovered him, and I felt like I would be doing a great disservice if I didn't take a moment to mention how awesome are the works of Robert R. McCammon. And I mentioned Bentley Little, uh, whose first book, The Revelation, was met with much acclaim in 1990, and Bentley Little uh, has always been a great read, and definitely one of the most prolific purveyors of weird fiction in the modern era. And author Christopher Pike uh, was big in the 80s with dozens of memorable works of young adult horror fiction. And it was in 1990 that he published his first book for adults with Sati, uh, followed by A Season of Passage, then The Cold One, Blind Mirror, and Falling, and a few other really awesome adult horror novels. Uh, Christopher Pike is a highly underrated as an adult horror novelist, so I highly recommend Christopher Pike if you've never taken a chance on his adult books. Another of my favorite writers who sprung forth during the 1990s is British novelist Simon Clark, who catapulted to some acclaim with his 1995 book Blood Crazy. And we also can't leave out the series Goosebumps uh, by R.L. Stein, which has sold millions of copies uh, geared towards teenagers and preteens, uh, which ended up with a whopping 62 books from 1992 to 1997. And there are many other awesome and great writers who hit it big in the 1990s, and I'm surely leaving out here, but I wanted to mention a few of my most favorite and underrated horror authors with uh, Robert R. McCammon, Bentley Little, Simon Clark, and uh, Christopher Pike. Um, and I'm just going to try to plow through this. 91 brought such well-received and even Oscar-winning horror films such as Cape Fear and the classic Silence of the Lambs, which brought forth perhaps the most popular and beloved serial killer of Hannibal Lecter. Silence of the Lambs was a sophisticated game-changer and went on to make nearly $300 million in box office receipts and went on to win Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture at the Oscars. And not only is it listed by many as being one of the greatest horror films ever made, uh, but just one of the greatest films ever made, regardless of genre. And of course, it made Anthony Hopkins a household name. Moving right along, 1992 gave us the final part of the Evil Dead trilogy, with the campy classic Army of Darkness. We also had part three of the Hellraiser franchise this year, and proving that the classic monster folklore was still alive and well, uh, we have uh, Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Dracula in 1992. Uh, We get the underrated Stephen King uh, written tale Sleepwalkers, uh, directed by Mick Garris, and a brand new horror icon also arrives with Candyman, adapted from Clive Barker as a short story. Of course, Candyman, as I speak right now, is the number one movie in America, uh, the new Candyman movie. So I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm very interested in doing so. Uh, Moving into 93, uh, we get the introduction of the rather silly Leprechaun, as well as Return of the Living Dead 3. Uh, which was the first time we get a mixture of sex appeal 
in the zombie genre with the beautiful Mindy Clark as a fetish zombie who is addicted to pain in order to satiate her uncontrollable need to feed on brains and bloody guts. And of course, not just one, but three Stephen King adaptations come this year uh, with Needful Things, Tommyknockers, and The Dark Half. A couple other notables from this year were the kids' classic Hocus Pocus and the Mexican film Kronos, uh, which was the first film of Guillermo del Toro, uh, who, of course, went on to become a powerhouse of the surreal and the weird and masterfully beautiful themes of gothic horror. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of the Water, perhaps being his most famous and well-received entries. 93 gave us the Christmas and Halloween classic from Tim Burton, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Always a great watch, always a must-watch, really any time of the year. But it's one of those strange movies that you can start watching that in September and go all the way to January just watching The Nightmare Before Christmas, and it ties into so many holidays. Uh, Then in 94... Uh, we get Carpenter's wonderful mindfuck in the mouth of madness. And to Carpenter fans, I would also recommend a short film he did uh, for an episode of the Masters of Horror television series uh, entitled Cigarette Burns, uh, which is a beautifully written and directed and ties into the themes of In the Mouth of Madness, which is that of a cursed film. 94 also brought us the critically acclaimed Anne Rice adaptation of Interview with the Vampire, uh, which greatly influenced the vampire genre for decades to come. And speaking of adaptations, uh, we have a new adaptation of the classic Frankenstein uh, starring Robert De Niro and Wolf starring Jack Nicholson this year. And strange to think that old Frankenstein's monster was nearly 200 years old in the 1990s, as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, was first published in 1818. And it just goes to show you the lasting power of memorable and relatable horror icons. And last but not least, we have one of my favorites, uh, one of my absolute favorites, and a horror uh, Halloween must-have with The Crow, starring Brandon Lee, and which, of course, would prove to be Lee's final film and the capstone of his personal legacy. Now, I've watched The Crow or uh, read the trade paperback probably at least 20 times since I was a teenager over the past 25 years. And my only regret is that when I went to watch The Crow in theaters on opening night uh, to a packed house, that I didn't applaud at the end of the movie. Because I'm sure had I stood up and applauded, the entire theater uh, would have felt inclined and justified to join in and applaud as well. But needless to say, I know a lot of kids and younger people today think that The Crow is overrated. And to that, I would say that you just had to be there, and you're entitled to your opinion. And my opinion is that you're a cynical dumbass with shitty taste in movies if you think The Crow is overrated. And of course, let me state here that the past couple of years also continually had Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th sequels, uh, with both of the franchises supposedly quote-unquote killing off their characters in the quote-unquote final movie. (coughs) Excuse me. Yet 1994 was when Wes Craven discovered how being meta uh, could be used in storytelling with his inventive reboot of Freddy in uh, The New Nightmare, in which we find out that Freddy is actually an ancient evil that is now visiting our world, uh, the real world, in order to torment the actors and director of the original movie. Uh, One more thing we can't leave out from 1994 is the Oliver Stone film Natural Born Killers. Uh, which was the penultimate crescendo of serial killer fandom and media obsession with serial killers and the circle, uh, the circus, which ensues uh, by obsession with serial killers. Natural Born Killers is a trippy and provocative piece uh, with a great soundtrack, and it was the first time that Woody Harrelson 
really broke out as a serious actor stepping away from his lovably stupid character of Woody Boyd on the classic TV show Cheers. Natural Born Killers is a disturbing favorite of mine and the culmination of a hundred years of serial killer pop culture obsession. A few other notables to mention from 1995 are Lord of Illusions, uh, The Prophecy and Species, uh, while 96 gives us The Frighteners and The Craft, and From Dusk Till Dawn, and on the cusp of how Wes Craven went meta uh, for the new nightmare, going meta was the entire plot line of the seminal modern horror classic of Scream, uh, which made the character of Ghostface famous. At the same time, Scream, uh, though with many comedic elements, was considered controversial, as it was thought it might inspire real-life killings and copycat serial killers. Whatever the case, the Scream franchise went on to make a billion dollars at theaters uh, and was well with DVD rentals. So I would say, uh, and some horror fans might see this as negative, uh, but I would definitely say that the meta approach to the Scream series had a huge impact on the horror and slasher genre in general. Scream was another one of those game-changers. And of course, many other similar types of movies followed, including I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend, and many others that were riding the wave of the more uh, PG-13 style of horror, uh, comedy horror, uh, geared towards a rapidly expanding teenage audience. And still riding that wave, yet another Scream sequel is set to release uh, in 2021, late 2021 or early 2022, which is 27 years after the release of the original. <clears throat> Wishmaster, Anaconda, Event Horizon, and The Devil's Advocate are also notable from this year, while 1998 brought us the comic book character of Blade uh, to the big screen for the first time, uh, starring Wesley Snipes, which definitely played a part in paving the way for the more, uh, more comic book movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, that was to come uh, over the next uh, decade of the 21st century. And yes, Blade is also set uh, for an MCU reboot to be released sometime in 2023. Oh yeah, and 98 also gave us a completely unnecessary and widely panned scene-for-scene -scene remake of Psycho. Uh, but most people would like to forget that happened. And the reason for the scene-for-scene -scene remake of Psycho, uh, producers believe that kids wouldn't watch black-and-white movies, so they wanted to do a scene-for-scene -scene remake of Psycho in color. What a load of bullshit that was. And holy shit! Okay, we made it to 1999. And I know I left out a whole lot of movies there, uh, but we're just getting closer and closer to the finish line. And I'm running as fast as I can while trying to cover all of the bases. Uh, 99 gave us a reinvention of some classic monsters with Tim Burton's uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, an adaptation of Richard Matheson's uh, book Stir of Echoes. Uh, we also got a couple not very successful adaptations with The Haunting of Hell House and House on Haunted Hill. Uh, 99 was also the year that the Japanese film Audition was released, which was really the first widely viewed and acclaimed entry uh, by director Takeshi Mike. Uh, and would go to bring more Japanese cinema and adaptations to U.S. audiences. 1999 gave us the classic The Sixth Sense from M. Night Shyamalan, uh, which catapulted him to a household name, allowed him to continue making films for the next 20 years. And while The Sixth Sense uh, doesn't have a whole lot of rewatch value necessarily once the gimmick has been revealed, uh, the movie made almost $700 million at the box office, making it one of the most successful horror films of all time, uh, which is a feat that M. Night Shyamalan has never been able to duplicate. And we could say The Sixth Sense isn't really a horror movie, it's more of a ghost movie. They, they fall in the supernatural, paranormal, they fall in the same, uh, same basic uh, 
landscape as far as I'm concerned. So we can say that The Sixth Sense was one of the highest grossing uh, horror movies of all time. And an unavoidable entry uh, from 1999 uh, that polarized audiences was the now classic Blair Witch Project. Now, myself, as an avid reader of Fangoria in the 90s, I was fully aware uh, upon going to see the Blair Witch Project opening weekend that it was not a true story. Uh, But the Blair Witch Project is credited not only with being the big film that started the found footage subgenre, if we don't take into account uh, Cannibal Holocaust from 1980, and this found footage approach is still being used 20 years later. But it's also considered the first true viral marketing campaign uh, that utilized the newly emerging internet for promotion. And however you feel about the film, uh, you have to admit that it was an ingenious way uh, that they used the found footage and word of mouth free publicity and viral marketing campaign of the internet in 1999. And that ingenuity played off as uh, the Blair Witch wanted to make almost $300 million at the box office. Uh, let's see, it was against a uh, budget of about half a million dollars. So they made quite a hefty haul on the Blair Witch Project uh, with a budget of half a million dollars, went on to make $300 million. And I'm sorry, but I'd love to see that in a horror genre, uh, the horror genre in particular, uh, going all the way back to Romero's Night of the Living Dead, uh, where a movie can be made on a very low budget and make back 300 plus times its profit. I would much rather see movies like the Blair Witch uh, that are made for $500,000 go on to make $300 million than I would rather, you know, to see a Marvel movie that was made for $250 million and then makes a billion dollars. But while popularizing, uh, by polarizing, but while the movie was polarizing, excuse me, I appreciate the Blair Witch Project, and I think it did have some creepy moments, and it definitely influenced the horror genre for decades to come. It was another game changer, not only of movie making, but of marketing campaigns utilizing the untapped potential of the internet for the first time. All right, somehow we made it. We're in the home stretch here, and we're dealing with the year 2000 to 2021. And I'm just going to jump around, and I'm not necessarily going to go in any sequential order of release, uh, but as with the rest of this episode and the previous three episodes of the series, I'm going to try to touch upon the highlights and key releases of the past 20 years. The year 2000 uh, started with such films as American Psycho, uh, while the year 2002, uh, zombies were finally starting to rise from their grave in full force, and we had the highly influential release of 28 Days Later, as well as the first movie in the Resident Evil franchise. And the success of 28 Days Later, uh, which pulled in nearly $100 million at the box office against an $8 million budget, uh, was considered a reinvention of the zombie genre. And along with Resident Evil, uh, would help to usher in uh, a well-received remake of Dawn of the Dead, in 2004, as well as the cult classic zombie comedy film Shaun of the Dead and the hugely popular Walking Dead comic book series, which also kicked off in 2004. Actually, it was uh, October of 2003 that the Walking Dead comic hit the shelves, uh, but needless to say, with 28 Days Later, uh, Resident Evil, the Dawn of the Dead remake, Shaun of the Dead, and the Walking Dead comic book, we were starting to see a big boom of zombies in pop culture uh, that while it's since become hugely oversaturated, it is still going pretty strong in 2021. And all I can say to this is that, man oh man, I wish I hadn't sold my first prints of the first 20 issues of The Walking Dead uh, right before the TV series started because I could have made a small fortune 
uh, had I held on to those a little while longer. But anyway, 28 Days Later and the success of 28 Days is uh, largely responsible for bringing zombies back to the screen and permeating pop culture. 2002 brought us The Ring, based on the Japanese Ringu uh, from just a few years earlier. And while The Ring is kind of like the Blair Witch Project and its divisiveness of opinion, I personally loved The Ring uh, when it first came out. I found it creepy as fuck, and uh, as well as an extremely invented premise. And Samara literally gave me some nightmares. Um, though part two and three weren't all that great. And of course, the success of The Ring in the U.S. also brought the Japanese the grudge to Western audiences. And Eastern cinema was now starting to get more and more recognition and remakes in the United States. 2004 uh, brought us uh, the first in a long-running Saw franchise. Uh, the premise of which is very much like the movie Seven from 1995, uh, but Jigsaw went on to become a modern horror icon and still has movies come out, coming out nearly 20 years later. Tw uh, 2005 brought us the Eli Roth fe feature Hostel, uh, which introduced what has since been dubbed torture porn. And no other movie than Hostel perhaps represents the post-9-11 climate and uh, public psyche uh, than the movie Hostel. Uh, which was hot off the heels of so many reports of brutality and torture against prisoners of war at Guantanamo Bay and other U.S.-led military headquarters. And a few more of the best uh, and most acclaimed horror movies of the 2000s gives us Jeepers Creepers, The Descent, Ginger Snaps, and Drag Me to Hell, while the, remote, uh, the remakes and reboots just kept on coming. Uh, with Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Rob Zombie's Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, Prom Night, Amityville Horror, I Am Legend, My Bloody Valentine, The Thing, two different remakes of Black Christmas, and a recent remake of Pet Cemetery. Uh, we also had yet another retelling of the Sweeney Todd tale from Tim Burton. And to me, I normally think most remakes are kind of garbage, and that only... uh. Two of the remakes from the past 20 years that I think are really worthy of inclusion in some of the greatest horror of all time uh, would be Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead and possibly the Evil Dead remake uh, from a few years ago, uh, <clears throat> which, while not featuring Bruce Campbell as anything more than a cameo at the end credits, still ended up being a pretty cool and creepy display of practical effects. And I'm not saying every horror remake or re uh, reboot sucks or doesn't have some redeeming merit, uh, but yeah, most of them kind of do suck. Uh, I think the majority of movie audiences uh, and horror fans are kind of fed up with the unimaginative milking of beloved horror franchises uh, just to try to make another quick buck. In terms of originality, the 2000s brought us such popular franchises as Final Destination, as well as some very cool and inventive entries like The Descent and The Ruins, or Drag Me to Hell and Ginger Snaps, as well as, uh, we already mentioned, Jeepers Creepers. Uh, from the Paranormal Activity franchise, uh, which definitely utilized the Blair Witch style found footage to its advantage, uh, took a page from its playbook, uh, to the modern Halloween masterpiece classic anthology film Trick or Treat, uh, from the Swedish reinvention of vampire folklore in the beautifully dark Let the Right One In, uh, to the disturbingly grotesque Dutch body horror The Human Centipede movie, uh, to franchises such as The Conjuring and Insidious, which has grossed nearly $3 billion at the box office uh, combined. Two other things I want to mention from the 2000, uh, 2000s that I'm a big fan of uh, was the HBO series True Blood, uh, which gave us a more modern approach to vampire lore based on the Suki Stackhouse series of books by Charlene Harris, 
wasn't really a fan of the books uh, so much as the television series, but I did love the True Blood television series, as well as um, one of my favorite book series of all time, and that is with the epic Dresden Files series of uh, books by author Jim Butcher. I've read all 19 books of the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher twice, uh, so that goes to show you what a fanboy I am of that series. And I also can't leave out and make a mention that the long-running fan favorite Supernatural, uh, which ran for 15 seasons. And while I, like many, uh, was a little disappointed uh, in the series finale, Supernatural is still undoubtedly one of my favorite series of all time. And we are now in the year 2021, asking, what is the future of horror? Uh, This four-part podcast has slowly been bringing things to the modern era uh, with that very question in mind. And that is, what is the future of horror? Of course, we'll probably always be stuck with the reboots and the remakes and endless sequels and prequels that eventually start to ruin most big franchises. And it seems obvious at this point that we'll always have the classics in some form or fashion. Uh, We'll probably always have a Dracula and vampires and werewolves and zombies, Frankenstein's monster to some capacity. And we can't help but to wonder how the modern monsters will stand up against the test of time. The Freddies and the Jasons and the Michael Myers and the Leatherfaces and Pinheads, Pumpkinheads, Candyman's, or even characters like Sam from Trick or Treat. Will the new breed still be around in 100 or 200 years like Frankenstein? That being said, what monsters will be bred and born in the next 10 years? Uh, we clearly have some kind of interesting new approaches going on with such films as the brutal, bizarre, and surreal Mandy starring Nicolas Cage, as well as acclaimed entries like Get Out and Heredity and Midsommar. I won't say we're in a time of reinvention in the horror genre, uh, but horror is definitely getting remixed in ways that are probably both positive and negative. And just as over the past hundred years, uh, horror is going on uh, tendrilling out perpetually, uh, like an octopus, like a Cthulhu, uh, as of course all media has been perpetuating at an accelerating rate uh, with a technological revolution of this past century, and particularly this past you know decade, this past two decades. More and more people can now turn big profits on smaller budgets and a more independent approach to filmmaking uh, with more and more feeds and streams and streaming channels and mediums by which to display their work and their movies. And as we have to look at the past 20 years in particular uh, with what's going on in the world in the political arena, uh, just the events of September 11th influenced the mass psyche and what uh, was produced in terms of horror fiction and pop culture. Uh, So too, what we have to see that the past couple of years will definitely play a huge part in how horror evolves and what paths it will explore. Unfortunately, everything with 9-11 and now with uh, COVID and lockdowns and vaccine mandates, etc., uh, etc., et is just kind of more of the same Cold War-type paranoia and UFO paranoia uh, that came out of the 50s and 60s. Uh, the same old us-versus-them pod people uh, paranoia body snatcher, communist sympathizer, big brother, totalitarian apocalypse uh, paranoia of the 50s and 60s. And modern horror and sci-fi will probably continue to repeat that underlying in the mass psyche. Uh, But I think we'll start to see more of a psychedelic and technologically uh, infused horror, cyber horror. I think uh, we'll have more inventive approaches to create new scenarios of horror or at least drastic remixes of classic tropes. I think and hope we have uh, some groundbreaking new storytelling mechanisms and a whole new batch of monsters and creatures and creators. 
that will become as popular as Jason or Freddy or the creature from the Black Lagoon. And to me, uh, you really have to ask what scares you and what you'd like to see in storytelling and specifically in horror fiction. And to me, horror is interdimensional. It's interstellar. It's psychedelic. And it's both ancient and it's brand new. And horror to me is something that has been unseen. And upon witnessing it, a person would freeze in shocked disbelief at the beautiful and bizarre monstrosity uh, which had revealed itself. I guess I see horror sort of akin to the lights of a UFO abduction, uh, which has been stated as having hypnotic effects and paralyzing effects on any who view them. Maybe the way a mouse might feel when it knows it's in the gaze of an owl or the way a deer freezes in the headlights. All I can say is that for me, horror means a lot of things. Uh, but as a bit of a writer myself, and a bit of a storyteller, uh, my horror is interdimensional, and psychedelic, and bleeds in through technology, or connection to technology. Uh, the spells and incantations used to summon the ancient ones is coming through the modern means of radio and television waves, satellites and cell towers, and consuming human energy like a vampire through every smartphone. So it's very hard for me to convey uh, what horror is to me or what truly scares me. Uh, but I hope if you want to delve a little deeper into uh, my interpretation of horror, I urge you to check out my original artwork at my website, www.geneticmemory.online. Uh, a lot of artwork over there, hundreds of pieces of my artwork for sale, so I hope you'll check that out. Uh, horror, to me, is both ancient and brand new. It hasn't been invented yet, and is bleeding through to our dimension. And like the vampire and many other creatures of classic lore, uh, we have to invite it in. Uh, yet they are also astral and extraterrestrial, and their true faces, if they can be called faces, uh, would probably be akin to biblical angels, uh, which were both terrifying and almost indescribable. Horror is the cursed film. It is the monkey's paw uh, that brings forth madness and all those who watch and complete neurological breakdown. <clears throat> yet to horror fans, horror is also an old friend. Uh, it's a sort of therapy and catharsis and facing of fears and taking some comfort in the uh, familiarity of reading a book or watching a movie. Horror, the best horror, uh, kind of takes the role of an anti-hero or a likable villain, uh, the misunderstood monster, uh, with which on some level we can relate to. That's why characters like Frankenstein or Jason Voorhees are both tragic examples of this. Uh, we like to associate with the monsters who are monsters due to no fault of their own, who are the freaks, so to speak. And the actual monsters are human and put them in that situation, and they're kind of just retaliating uh, to an unfair human circumstance. And I know I'm getting a little off track here. Uh, hopefully not completely off the rails. Uh, but I guess when I look at the low-budget uh, films like Night of the Living Dead or Blair Witch or many others that end up taking in hundreds of millions of dollars and definitely influencing the horror genre, I can only hope and imagine that we will continue to see new and inventive and low-budget means of storytelling, uh, which now have dozens of options for distribution and fundraising. And make no mistake, we're going to see a lot of bullshit and unoriginality. Uh, just as we always have. Uh, but the methods by which to create uh, can now present their creation and connect with horror fans, that those means are perpetually growing. Uh, 
uh, with more and more options for creators to display their art. So aside from the fact that we'll always have reboots and sequels and reimaginings and we'll always have certain themes of horror, probably the final girl scenario uh, will always be around. That's the first that comes to mind. People like Stephen King will still be influential for many years to come. Uh, it is a big bit difficult uh, to say what new ways horror will evolve in terms of originality and execution. I mean, where are the new Clive Barkers? And H.P. Lovecraft's and Poe's. Where is the new blood? Uh, where is the new generation? Where and who are the new monsters of cinema and literature? And where are the new ideas? And along with the entire world and what's going on in our day-to-day affairs, horror fiction is at a crossroads right now. And it's up to all of us to decide where we want to take it. Dear listeners, if you made it this far, I truly commend you. Especially if you got through all four episodes of this roughly six-hour podcast. And seeing how the release of this episode, which took much longer than I wanted it to, to put out. Uh, but better late than never. Uh, but seeing how it's coming uh, up close to October here, not too long, a couple months. I'd like to announce that one of the next editions of this podcast will be 31 short horror stories written and narrated by me. To be released in the next few weeks and just in time for Halloween. This podcast is brought to you by www.conspiraporn.com, geneticmemory.online, and primordialproductions.info, as well as the Facebook page Mental Pop, and my account on Instagram at MakeArtNotMemes. And you can email me at mad247 at weirdness.com and tell me how much I suck, how much you hated this podcast, and all the things I left out that I should have talked about. Close today, I'd like to thank you for listening. And to mention one last thing that I should have mentioned last episode, and that is the 1922 Swedish horror documentary film Haxen. And I couldn't end this four-part series without at least giving a mention to the film Haxen. And I'm sure there are a dozen other things I'll think about mentioning in the coming weeks, uh, but I'm just going to have to call it a day at this point. And now that we're in September, uh, soon to be October, I wish you all fun and safe fall season filled with many spooks and frights. Until next time, peace profound.